0: you to pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we pray for for wisdom to understand your word this morning and uh, that we would hear it gladly, um, but not like Herod, uh, just listening and not really believing, uh, but that we would believe it and that you would help us, Father, to find true refuge, true safety in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what do you, who do you think uh, Jesus is? Who do you think he is? Um, um, the man who was born in the first century, 2,000 years ago, that man, that guy. Who do you think he is? Um, maybe you've never really thought about him at all or not for a long time. Was he this prophet? Was he a, a teacher? Was he just a wise man? Or was he God? There's disagreement about who Jesus was. Uh, he was a very contra- controversial figure um, that, that many, many um, believe many things about him. Uh, but everybody agrees that he was a significant person. And, and what makes him so significant is that he made bold claims. And, and, and what makes him significant is, is that he said things that ordinary people don't say. And he did things that normal people don't do. And so I don't know where each of you are at when it comes to Jesus. I can't read your heart. I don't know where everybody is. Um, You might believe in him. Or you might think that I'm crazy for talking about a dead guy. My job description is literally to preach about a guy who lived and died 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead. I mean, think about that job description, right? That's pretty crazy. Maybe you believe that that's crazy. Or, Or you might think it makes no difference at all whether or not Jesus was raised or not. Maybe that's where you're at. Uh, But let me say this. The the question, who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Is the most important question of your entire life. More important than who you're going to marry. More important than what kind of job you're going to end up having. Or what kind of career success you have in this life. Or um, parenting decisions that you reach. More important than any of that stuff. Is the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? And so I hope to help you answer that today by exploring three things this morning. Uh, the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. From John, uh, sorry, Mark, I don't know why I keep saying John. Um, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. So, let's think about the identity of Jesus. Uh, just before Jesus sent his disciples on mission, he was rejected... By those who knew him best. He was rejected. Um, for the first time, Jesus came to preach in his hometown and, and uh, in the hometown synagogue or church, basically. And as we've been studying, he's been a very successful figure, right? He's been very popular in uh, Capernaum. So everywhere that he's traveled so far, he's had mad success. The crowds formed to see him. And so we can expect this to happen again in his hometown. At least that's what we would think. But instead, they saw him, they, they, they kind of um, perceived him uh, with, with skepticism. They were skeptical about his true identity. Why do the people of Nazareth reject Jesus? Why do they reject him? The answer to that question is not really all that obvious to me. Um, it's not obvious because you know, in my experience, whenever a small-town guy or girl becomes famous, right, everybody's just itching to tell the story about how they went to school with them, how they knew them. You know, like, they're, they're telling everything they can about how popular, um, maybe, maybe they were best friends with the person, or, you know, they're always trying to grab association. And so it doesn't make sense to me. Verses 1 and 2, they they seem pretty positive. The people are astonished. They're going, what what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse 2. But then everything changes in verse 3. Verse 3 says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And then it says this, and they took offense at him. The rejection's familiar, right? if we remember back to to mark chapter three his his family said he was out of his mind, um, and so maybe word of that made made travel to the town or or maybe they decided to say that um, he was grabbing power from a demonic source like the the scribes had argued in Mark three, questioning his authority, or maybe they thought it was. Impossible for Jesus to amount to much because he was the son of a carpenter. Carpenter was, you know, an average, lower, blue-collar job. It wasn't um, a very popular, uh, wasn't a very wealthy uh, job. And, and, and they, they identify him as a carpenter. And then, and then look, they, they say um, he's the son of Mary. They don't even grant him being son of Joseph. They kind of slight him and they say he's the son of Mary. Um, so they're, they're, they're questioning his father. And so whatever the reason, right, the text tells us they took offense at him. The word for offense here is scandalon, Scandal, right? It's a stumbling block. Maybe if, well, we think of 1 Corinthians, the stumbling block of the gospel. What is it about the message of the gospel that stands in the way of you believing in Jesus today? Do you find it offensive that God extends grace and forgiveness to people who don't deserve it? Do you find it offensive that the gospel message lets the guilty go free? Do you find it offensive that God's mercy can be extended to anybody at any time? Is that offensive? The gospel is scandalous. But this news is not going to be accepted by everyone. That's what we're learning here. Not everyone's going to believe that Jesus is the one who lived and died to save them. By the time we hit Mark chapter 6, after watching Jesus call in the storm, cast out demons, cure illnesses, he raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead, right, does all these miraculous things, we would begin to think that Jesus is this unstoppable figure. I mean, anywhere he goes, right, he's getting popular. Anywhere he goes, people are flocking to, to be healed by him. And we might think that his success is automatic. And then this happens, right? He's rejected. It serves here to remind us that the kingdom must be received by faith alone. We have to have belief. We have to have trust. We have to, as we were singing, we have to be resting, resting in Jesus. Earlier, Jesus was a scandal to the social and religious institutions. In Mark 5, we saw all that. The kingdom of God can't be controlled by those institutions. And now we're beginning to see that not even his family has control over the kingdom of God. Verse 4, read with me. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus explains the, the locals' rejection of him by quoting this pagan proverb. Uh, philosophers in the Greek world, they would go around and they, they would say uh, this phrase, familiarity breeds com- contempt. Or I like how my mom puts it, you know, when she, uh, she comes and, and visits for a weekend, she says, in-laws stink after three days, Right? They begin to stink. They, you, know, they, you, don't, you don't want to stay any longer than that. You don't want to outlive out, out, out your stay. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, so using the proverb means Jesus is only seen as the local boy of Nazareth. There's no reason why he should be any different from anyone else. He should just be a carpenter's son. Um, and that's it. He shouldn't be going around teaching and preaching about the good news of the kingdom. But who do you say Jesus is? Let's look at his mission. The mission of Jesus. So when, when Jesus first called fishermen, right? When he called fishermen, he promised them something. He said, I will make you fishers of men. Right? That was the beginning of Mark's gospel. He promised that. And so now we come to this place in the gospel where this is being realized. Where that he's making good on his promise to make them fishers of men. He sends them out as disciples, verses 7 through 13. And up to this point, They've just been spectators rather than actors in this play. They, um, now they're thrown into this movie as supporting characters in the greatest story ever told. And so he sends them out with little. In the first century, it was common for street preachers to carry with them uh, a couple things. They would have a, a change of clothes, right? So a couple shirts, a staff, and a beggar's bag. ...to carry around so you could get by from day to day and not worry about the next day. Jesus says, don't take anything. He says, don't take a change of clothes, don't carry a bag. Uh, In other words, you're going to rely on my provision every single day. And there's this parallel here for Christ's church, for us today. Like these disciples, we're sent to make disciples in this world with very limited supply. Uh, God's provided us with a couple things. He, he's given us the preaching of the gospel, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. He's given us those things essentially to, to carry with us, right? That's it, to make disciples in this world. And and we don't have extravagance. Uh, when Jesus tasked his church, he didn't say, Go therefore and make disciples by entertaining the nations. He didn't say, go therefore and make disciples by making the nations like you. But he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching. That's that's what he's given his church. That's our mission. That's our job description as the local church. And so we're, we're, we're equipped with so little. And yet God has found that to be so much because he's the one providing it for his church. And so like the world the first disciples experienced... We live in this world that is characterized by unbelief. Right? A lot of people just don't believe in Jesus. A lot of our, our neighbors and friends, they, they don't think that Jesus is all that important, that he would make no difference in their life. And the, the culture we live in is not interested in Jesus, at least not in the Jesus of the Bible. Studies are showing that there's a, the rise of the nuns, that is, those who identify religiously as not religious, and there's also a rise in the duns, that is uh, those people who have attended church at one point in their life and they've left church. They no longer think that they, they, they need church. And, and so people are disillusioned with church. And, and many of these people have left for really good reasons. The church has been too political, or the church has been too judgmental, or the church has spiritually abused them. Or the church has acted in ways that are contrary to the ways of Jesus, right? And so, I mean, for all of those reasons and more, uh, those are are good reasons to leave church. I I understand that. I've, I've felt that way. I feel that way sometimes. I hope Redemption Church will be a safe haven for people who feel that way about church. I hope that... That that we can be this church that is welcoming, that is home for people who feel like refugees, who feel like foreigners to church, and I think we are. When I look around, I think we are that kind of place. Um, I see people who want to help people find meaning in life, meaning, meaning in Jesus, and, and and we want to help people be good neighbors and and hard workers in in our callings. And we have something as the church that makes all the difference in the world. What is that? Our motivation comes from the gospel message itself. Right? We've experienced God's faithfulness in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He was raised from the dead. And, and the preaching of him, what he's done, is life-giving. right? And it's life-changing. And so our mission is to make disciples, by, by giving people this news, by preaching that gospel message... I want to explain now more of what that content of that message is. Let's think about the resurrection of Jesus. The third point, the resurrection of Jesus. So we encounter this really weird story. It's, it's bizarre. Um, have you ever been talking to a, a young child? Maybe it's your kid or maybe it's another kid. And you're, you're talking to them. And, and all of a sudden, right, you are going one way in the conversation. And then out of nowhere, they're like fire truck. Anybody ever experience that? It's like the conversation is completely derailed, and you're like, okay, let's talk about fire trucks. Sure, why not? That's what's happening in this gospel right, right now. All, all of a sudden, right, we're like, we're, we're going, it's Jesus' identity, it's Jesus' mission, and then now, John the Baptist. It's like, we haven't heard about John the Baptist since chapter one, so why are we hearing about John the Baptist all of a sudden, right? So it's like fire truck. Um, it's not random, let me just say that. So this is a typical, uh, what's called a Markian, sand, Markian sandwich. And does anyone remember us having, eating one of the sandwiches earlier? Yeah, a couple nods. When was that? Anybody know? Girl. Yep, the girl, okay. So the 12-year-old girl and the, the woman with the 12-year-old hemorrhage, right? So that was another sandwich. And so, um, Mark's doing that again, only this time with John the Baptist. And it's this flashback. Um, we're, 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 we're brought back into this encounter with John. And um, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, like I am, so any, any Lord of the Rings fans, couple? It's not, this is not a spoiler, because this movie's been out for decades. I mean, it's, it's old school. Okay. So, um, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, uh, this is a lot like what the director, uh, Peter Jackson, does in Two Towers. Okay. So, there's this big battle scene, epic battle at Helm's Deep uh, between the Uruk-hai, the orcs, and the forces of Rohan. Okay. And, and, and they're just going at it. And then all of a sudden, the scene just cuts out and, you know, it goes from fast-paced, fast-paced, all kinds of gore and blood and great stuff and uh, you know, not Leonidas, um, Legolas, there we go, Legolas, and, 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 you know, they're just, it's crazy, and then it's, 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 we're transported to uh, this, this really slow scene with what's called the Ents, and they're this, these tree-like figures, right, these towering things that talk so slow, right, don't be hasty. And they talk very slow. And uh, 45 minutes or whatever, hours pass and, and they've only said hello to each other. Right? And Mary and Pippin are like, come on. Like, our friends are dying. Like, please, we need to save them. Right? So, so it's a lot like that. The sandwich is so much like that. It's, it, 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 it's a flashback and it, it cuts scene. Um, because like the two towers, this story is related. Right? The, in the two towers, the ants will come and they will, you know, help save the day. And they will they'll help Rohan defeat their enemies just as Jesus is going to come and he's going to put an end to death through his resurrection. So let's think about that story in, in verses fourteen through twenty nine. Uh, King Herod here, just real quick note King Herod here is is Herod the um, the great's grandson. And, and that's, that, that's the Herod, by the way, if, if you're familiar uh, with any church history or anything like that. That's the one who, who slaughtered a bunch of babies when Jesus was born. So that guy. Um, so grandson of him. And, and this Herod is described as somebody who liked hearing John's preaching. And so he actually protected John. Um, in, in this case, he put him in jail. I don't know how, I mean, that's safe protection, I guess. It's not really freedom. But he put him in jail to protect him um, from, from Herodias. Um, now, the, the connection between Jesus and John for Herod is that sometime after John was murdered, Jesus' popul- popularity soared. And so, for, uh, verse 14 tells us some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And then, verse 16 cues, it says, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Psychologically, you can see, like, the fear creep in on Herod. He's going, "Oh my gosh!" Like, because he was responsible for killing John, he's he's afraid. He's going, "Oh no!" Like, uh, so he's feeling guilt for what he's done. Let me let me share the story really quick. Herod married his his um, his brother's wife named Herodias, and, and John was telling him to repent because, according to the Mosaic law, that's no bueno. Okay, that's not good. You can't do that, and so it was a sin. And Herod feared John. And, and, and Herodias did not. And so one night, Herod is partying. And this, um, this banquet is described. It's how it's described. And, and commentators all say it was a drunken orgy. That's the kind of banquet it was. And it's this party. And it's for Herod's birthday. And they're having lots of fun. And one of the main dancers is actually Herodias' daughter, which is really weird. Um, and so drunk Herod um, makes this promise, this outlandish claim. He says... Uh, uh, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom, right? Promises, I mean, you can have up to half my kingdom. And so she goes, she talks to mom. Mom says, you know, I want the head of John the Baptist. I want that guy dead. And so that's what she asks for. Herod's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And what does he do? He doesn't want to risk losing his reputation because he said that in front of all the generals and all the leaders and all that stuff, right? So he goes ahead and he murders John, Why does Mark tell this story? He shares this gruesome story with us because it throws light, it casts light on the mission of Jesus. It's a sign of what the kingdom of God can expect from the kingdoms of this world. In other words, church, we're not going to be buddy-buddy with the kingdoms of of this world, right? Um, We're not going to be buddy-buddy with politics all the time. We're not going to be buddy-buddy Uh, with culture all the time. We're not going to be accepted everywhere we go. And so we have to get used to that. And I think um, as we're reading in our everyday church um, readings as as community groups, as a church, um, along the same lines of that, I think this has massive implications for us as we think about our place in society right now. That we're living in a post-Christian culture, The church doesn't have the kind of influence or sway that it used to have. And you know what? That's okay. It's actually a good thing because we can focus on the mission of the church without being derailed. And so Mark is is reminding us that what happened to John is what's going to happen to Jesus. And what happened to them is what is going to happen to all those who follow Jesus. Listen how Mark ends the telling of the story. He says, verse 29, When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Mark's audience, his readers of this gospel, they are completely aware of, they know of the death of Jesus. Like John, Jesus' body was also laid into a tomb. And so this story, in this story, Mark is weaving together their deaths. Both men are handed over. Both men are betrayed by a friend. For John, it was Herod. For Jesus, it was a man named Judas. Both men are executed. For John, it was beheading. For Jesus, it was crucifixion. Both men are murdered shamefully. Both men are killed because of preaching about news of the kingdom. And maybe most shockingly, both men have people talking about resurrection, People were claiming that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, that 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 had Herod afraid and fearful. And, of course, we know, and Mark's audience knows, that John was not raised from the dead, of course. What the story is doing is it's, it's preparing readers to see the resurrection of Jesus is going to happen. That's what it's doing. It's a prediction of Christ's resurrection from the dead, that Jesus is going to be raised, that the tomb that he was laid in is going to be empty. And so this short story about John the Baptist is placed here to tell us not only of a flashback, but it's a flash forward. It's casting us to look into the future at what Jesus will do. And Mark wants us to see that he's going to be laid into a tomb. Those in power will put Jesus to death. It won't be Herod this time. It will be a a man named Pontius Pilate. And Jesus will be crucified for the forgiveness of sins. The question Mark lays before us is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the son of God who came to save people for himself? Is he more than a prophet, a wise man, or a teacher? Is he the one who was murdered in your place so that you could receive eternal life in him? What do you believe about him? Who do you say that he is? Is he your savior? For all of you who believe in Jesus today, death will not have the last word. Your identity will be Christ's identity. Your mission is now the mission that he sent the disciples out on. That's now your mission as Christ's church. And as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago in history, so surely will you too be raised."